Luke chapter 6. So as you recall in our previous study, um, this is not the Sermon on the Mount. This is called the Sermon on the Plateau. Jesus gave uh, two teachings to his disciples, but in this case, he's already appointed the apostles and he's teaching them. And this is a message to believers. And as he's laying this out, he's giving them this understanding of, of how life is supposed to operate. And we went through a large portion of it, but we're going to pick up this morning in verse 37 because verse 37 starts with this understanding of judge not and you shall not be judged. And it goes through and it, and it lays it out. We're going to go all the way to the, the end of it. And uh, I know it'll seem like a lot. I'm going to have you stand in a moment, not now. Um, but suffice it to say, it all has to be together because it's, it's contextual. And I, I believe God has a a special message for us. So at least it ministered to me. If it doesn't to you, then it was only for me. And thanks for being a part of my time with the Lord. Let's stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. Picking up at verse 37, I'll read out loud if you'll follow along silently. Jesus says, judge not, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, And it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. And we're going to focus on that because it's a tithing. No, I'm kidding. I don't even think I covered it last service. Verse 39. Jesus spoke a parable to them. Now remember, a parable is um, a heavenly truth with an earthly illustration. Parallel lines alongside. So he takes a heavenly truth with an earthly illustration to come alongside so you understand it better. Okay, so this is a parable, parabolos. He says, here's the parable. Can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into the ditch? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not perceive the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, brother, let me remove the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the plank that is in your own eye? Hypocrite! First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck that is in your brother's eye. For a good tree does not bear bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. For every tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they gather grapes from a bramble bush. A good man out of the good treasures of his heart brings forth good, and an evil man out of the evil treasures of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart... His mouth speaks. Amen. But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I say? Whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation. Everyone say foundation. Foundation. One more time. Foundation. Who is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently against the house and could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. But he who heard and did nothing is like a man who built a house on the earth without a foundation against which the stream beat vehemently and immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. Lord, bless our time in your word, please. Holy Spirit, lead us into all truth. Lord, a lot to cover, but by your grace and by your spirit, would you please allow us to see it in its completeness and apply it to our lives that we would be moved by it, not to be condemned, but to be convicted. Conviction is good. Condemnation is not. 
There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but you bring us to a place where we want you to change us by the power of your spirit. And so, Lord, please, through your word this day, we know that faith comes from hearing and hearing from your word. And we ask that you'd be glorified as you minister to us and bless us, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have a seat. So this passage of scripture through the course of this week, as I have observed it, it is one of those things that you want to build upon and, it, and one adds to the next and to the next until you have the, the completeness of the message Christ is giving. And we're, we're breaking it in parts, but I wanted to take a large swath of it today so that we would understand it in its, in its kind of complexity, but also its simplicity. I had you repeat the word foundation and this idea of foundation is that which is laid that you build something upon. And anyone who's a builder or anyone who's ever built anything knows that the, the building is only as strong as the foundation. I know there's a whole um, uh, housing tract in Thousand Oaks, and as the mayor, I'm aware of this, that the, the guy who built those houses uh, didn't put the rebar in, and he skimped on it, and all those houses have cracked foundations, and they had to repair them, and, and the property values decreased, and the man actually was sued, and I think, if I'm not mistaken, he may have committed suicide. You don't, you don't want to build a house on a bad foundation. It's awful. The entire house crumbles over time. And so the Lord is emphasizing this concept of foundation. And he says that we're to build on this firm foundation, and that foundation is rock. If you build something on shifting sand, the sand will shift and the foundation will crack. You want to find solid bedrock on which to pour that foundation. And as we look at this idea of a foundation, the scriptures speak of it, especially in Psalm 11, and I'll read it to you. Uh, the psalmist writes... In the Lord I put my trust, and how can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For look, the wicked bend their bow, they make ready their arrow on the string, that they may shoot secretly at the upright in heart. So everyone wants to run. Oh, California's imploding. Oh, we got to run to Montana and build our compound and get our canned food and get our AR-15s and we got to get out of here. And Not us, because we remain, but they've all left, I'm just saying, or, or go to Texas. And as all this happens, then the, the Lord says with that fear that is causing the righteous to want to flee. The Lord says, uh, he, he asks this question that I think seems to be resonating in the body of Christ as we watch this great experiment in liberty start to struggle. And the Lord says, if the foundations are destroyed, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? It's, it's almost frightening we're watching the foundations of this constitutional republic being destroyed and we're thinking, what can the righteous do? What can the righteous do? The Lord equates righteousness with foundation. Righteousness with foundation. The righteous build the foundation. The foundation is built on the rock. This idea of righteousness because he says, for the Lord is righteous, he loves righteousness. His countenance beholds the upright. Righteousness, right, upright. What does righteous mean? If we're building a foundation on righteousness, what does righteous mean? It means acting in accord with divine or moral law. This idea of doing what's right. There's laws. And, and, and this idea that righteousness, this is Proverbs 14. Wisdom rests in the heart of him who has understanding. 
but what is in the heart of fools is made known. And then God says this in verse 34 of Proverbs 14. Pay attention. He says, righteousness exalts a nation. You can build on righteousness. And that edifice grows. Righteousness exalts a nation. But sin is a reproach to any people. Sin crumbles the foundation. If the, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Righteousness builds on a foundation of a rock. And then... It was Job who was whining about his circumstances, similar to many people in the body of Christ today, wondering where God is. How can he allow this to happen? This is awful. And as he's complaining and laying out his lament to God, and he's just saying, where are you? And he's, he's just overwhelmed. And he asks all these questions of God Almighty. And there's people in, in life that say, when I, get to, when I leave this earth, I've got questions for God. Well, okay, you can kind of take a look at Job and see how that's going to work for you. God answers in chapter 38, verse 1 of the book of Job. By the way, Job is the oldest book in the Bible because it predates Genesis. Man has to deal with suffering in a fallen world, and so God started with the book of Job so he'd understand the point of it. He says, The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this who darkens my counsel by words without knowledge? Now prepare yourself like a man, and I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone? Cornerstone is this this cornerstone of the building that if it's not set properly, the whole building will be out of alignment. God says, I laid the foundations. Where were you when I built it? There are, there are truths that we operate on. This is my world. This is my universe. I'm God. You question me? Let me ask you out of the whirlwind. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? You seem to understand. You seem to have questions for me. You seem to doubt me. <clears throat> and I say all this because as this passage is laid out, I had again, I had you emphasize the word foundation. Jesus is going through this entire statement and he comes to this place about laying a foundation. He equates it to this idea of a good tree bears good fruit, a bad tree doesn't bear good fruit, it bears bad fruit. Do you get get berries from a a thorn bush? No. And what he's laying out is he's saying, look, from the overflow of a man's heart comes his words. If he's evil, he's going to speak evil. If he's good, the words that come forward will be good. Paul used this in the letter to a church that was struggling in in Corinth. And in the letter that he wrote to the church at Corinth, he says, for where there is envy and strife and divisions among you. And that's one of the things that Pastor Michael and I experienced yesterday. Is that in America today, we are doing everything we can to split the nation. We're going we're gonna to split over our, our, our sexual identity. We're going to sp- split over our melanin content. We're going to split over whatever it is. We're going to split. And we're going to divide. And as it lays out here, where, for where there are envy, strife, divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? We, we divide over eschatology. I'm pre-trip, pre-millennial. Well, I'm post-trip. Well, that's, that's not a godly position to hold. And we, we divide over that. All the non-essentials that, that are, are non-salvific, we, we tend to find a way to divide over that. 
And yet Paul says, where there is envy and strife and division among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? You say you're Christians, you're in the church, but you're acting like mere men. You can't even stay in a relationship with each other. For when one says, I am of Paul, and another says, I'm of Apollos, are you not carnal? And we split over everything. Even now that Pastor Chuck has gone on to be with the Lord, Calvary chapels have already split. We have a CGN and a CCA. Well, I'm of this and I'm of that. And then, and, and if, you, if you fellowship with those folks, then you're not part of us. And if you fellowship with them, then you're not part of us. And I, I sit, sit back and I keep the name Calvary Chapel because I adore Chuck and I'm thankful for the, for the systematic study of the scriptures. And, but I have no desire to be a part of that. I really don't. And, and Paul goes on to write to this church that's divided. He says, for we are God's fellow workers. We're building something. For we're God's fellow workers and you are God's field and you are God's building according to the grace of God which was given to me as a wise master builder. I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it for no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work for what sort it is. Now I've taken great strides to lay an understanding of the similarity between foundation and righteousness. I've used scriptures to portray to you this idea that righteousness exalts a nation and that we're to lay a foundation and that foundation is Christ. That's the rock upon which we build everything. I've also taken great strides to describe to you how, how division destroys a church. How we can divide over the most stupid of things. And yet God is calling us to this place. And here's how the, the message all day yesterday, listening to these amazing men and women who had suffered pain unlike anything I've ever known, and ministered to me. Jesus begins by teaching his disciples, believers, He says, judge not and you shall not be judged. Now for the secular progressives who don't believe in Jesus Christ and you were brought into the room and you're you're struggling and and this is the one scripture that you have had the privilege to memorize. I want to put it into context for you because you, you come to me in the course of maybe operating in the city that who are you to judge me judge not lest ye be judged and 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 that is the one scripture that I've always come across in in my dealings in all of society that they've never had to spend a day in a church in their life they've never even cracked a bible but doggone it they know this verse they don't even know where it exists but they know how to quote judge not lest ye be judged and I'm thinking if you're going to use that and you're going to drop the scripture bomb on me why don't you do a little more work to see it in context? Because I, I want to tell you, it doesn't work that way. If you tell me you're an orange tree, turn, turn off your phones. There we go. You tell me you're an orange tree, I want to see some oranges. Oh, bro, that's judging. No, it's not. I want to see if you're telling the truth. You're not allowed to judge. Yes, I am. No, the scripture says judge not lest you be judged. It means I'm not allowed to judge you unto condemnation, but certainly by unto identification. You will know the truth. The truth will set you free. If you're telling me something, I'm allowed to judge and, and weigh it and do this understanding to see if two plus two equals four, and I'm going to test it. And if it's not true, it doesn't work. I'm allowed to judge, not unto condemnation. I can't say you're going to hell. 
Who am I to know? God is the one who sorts that out in the end days. Judge not, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. I like that one because it's proactive. It's not in the negative. You forgive, and then you're going to be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. It's proactive. Well, if someone gives to me, maybe I'll give. No, 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 no. You're first. Give. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. He initiated that. We're initiators. We change the world by giving. We, in, we, we change the world by forgiving. Giving, forgiving, giving, forgiving. We're proactive in that capacity. Well, I'll forgive if they forgive me. I'll apologize if they apologize. No, you're a Christian. You, you, you start it. See, what Jesus is laying out here in verses 37 and 38 is he's saying to them, you're identifying yourself by your morality. Morality is defined simply as not doing what's wrong. And I am saying, I, you're doing what's wrong, but I'm not doing what's wrong. You drink, you smoke, you chew, you hang around with those who do, but I don't. You're wrong. Okay, so you're moral. That's great. And we love to justify our existence on this earth by what we don't do. And Jesus is saying, you want to sit back and define your life by what you don't do? To the level you judge that, people are going to sit and judge you. It's worthless and fruitless. And you know what? Doggone it, if we don't have really good reason to judge people. Have you ever been hurt? Has somebody, has somebody offended you? I think one of the most profound things yesterday, listening to these men and women speak, each one, the man who had 2,000 pounds of steel just dropped on him by a white racist Alabaman, Alabamian, Alabamian, I don't know what it is. And the man paralyzed, unable to speak, laying on his back, counting the holes in the ceiling tile, ruminating over what that man did to him, that he tried to kill him simply because he didn't possess less melanin. A lieutenant colonel, fifth in his class, deep select for flag rank, and five white southern officers decide to sit on a review board and unjustly give him a dishonorable discharge and charge him to be guilty of something he never did. A white lawyer, Jewish lawyer, as I recall, who had never practiced military law, came alongside, looked at this and said, this is a travesty of justice. He said, I know, but I can't take on the federal government. I can't afford an attorney. He says, I'll do it for you pro bono. I'm a Christian, you're a Jew. He says, I don't care if I'm a Jew and you're a Christian. This is wrong. And he steps in and defends him. And not only does he win the case, but it changes this man's heart. And instead of ruminating over his anger and judging and saying, all white people, all white people. See, what blew me away is I've never been offended or hurt in the capacity that any of these men and women had ever been hurt. Walter Hoy, his story is one, and I read his book, it's, it's just awful. 
Every one of these men should have a reason to hate me. And yet they don't judge me by the color of my skin and lump me in with everything else because they've been offended or hurt by somebody who didn't possess as much melanin. How did that happen? They came to a place where they saw this idea that Christianity isn't judging people. Christianity isn't, isn't inactive, it's proactive. To judge is simply to not do anything. You sit back and justify your life and you're not doing anything. You judge and you condemn. All of them, sweeping. And what does it do? It creates strife, envy, division. It destroys the church. It destroys a culture. We pit one another against the other. And what's the only remedy for that? Proactive. To forgive. I will forgive when they forgive me. No, Jesus says. You forgive first. Do you know what they did to me? Yes. Do you know what they did to me? Jesus says. Get over it. I forgave you. Yes. So? You're God. Yes, but I never used my deity to accomplish anything in my humanity. And you can do everything I did. And I said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I forgave. You forgive. It's proactive. Do good to those who spitefully use you. I taught you that earlier. Do you remember? Yes. Then give to them. Do something nice for them. No. No, they're all bad. And yet yesterday I was the recipient of a gift of a man who had been more pain than you can possibly imagine. Men who had been more pain than they can possibly imagine by other men who look just like me. And proactively they came all day yesterday, traveled from great distance, and they gave. They poured into my life and they forgave and they gave and they poured back. You see, the problem is In your rage and your anger and your bitterness, you're blind. And the blindness comes by this fact that the scripture says in this parable, Jesus says, can the blind lead the blind? Can the blind lead the blind? No. If you're blind and and somebody sits in the passenger seat and says, drive and I'll tell you where to go, but they can't see either, you may get to where you're going, but the car is going to be thrashed and there'll be bodies everywhere. The blind do not lead the blind. Will they not both fall into a ditch? And it's, it's, it's an answer. It's very clear. Yeah, they'll both fall into a ditch. And Jesus says, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is perfectly trained will be like the teacher. I'm teaching you. I want you to be like me. I want you to forgive. I want you to give. I don't want you to stand in judgment to, to, call, to do this, this virtue signaling. Oh, we love that in the body of Christ, virtue signaling. You know where the secular progressive left got it? They got it from us. The the sins that we love to magnify outside the world are the ones that we in the body of Christ have all agreed are terrible. We don't want to look at gluttony. We don't want to look at, 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 at judgment. We don't want to look at stinginess. We don't want to look at coveting. We don't want to look at any of those. But these we can clearly identify. And it's an us versus them. Now I get that. 
But Jesus is saying, look at yourself. You want to condemn, but that's not what I've called you to. I've called you to this place where you are, you are to be like your teacher. Christ did not come to condemn the world, but to forgive. And that's the idea. He says, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye? And the word speck is this minute little dust in your eyeball. He says, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but don't perceive the plank? And the word plank is not like a board. It is, it is the center beam of a building. So it's, it's hyperbole. So you've got this enormous plank in your eye. And, and, and you go to look at your brother, to, to, and, and you're wiping everyone out. And everyone's ducking and moving. You're not, you don't get invited to dinner parties. You're just everything. Nobody wants you around because you just take care of the whole room. You, you, you manage to offend everyone. And you got that look on your face. Oh, look at you. And that's that plank. And he's saying, of the human body that is exposed to the public, that is most sensitive, is the, the human eye. It's a window into the soul. That's why you, you have candlelight at dinner with somebody that you're, 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 you're drawn to because it opens the iris and the pupils become large and you just look into their soul and it's, it's captivating candlelight. And there's something intimate about looking into somebody's eye. And if they're hiding something, unless their, their, their soul has been seared, they can't even look at you if, if things aren't right. It's that idea of eye contact. And, and you have to look down because you, you don't want people to see you. You don't want people to know. But to, to come to a place where you're unashamed and you feel, you feel comforted in their presence, you can look at them. And, and then to trust somebody to come up to this very intricate organ of your body. And, and they didn't have mirrors back then. You couldn't look and go, ah. Uh. No, you had to say, is there something in my eye? And you're not going to ask the guy with the plank. You're going to ask somebody who's very delicate, somebody you trust, somebody that you know will be delicate and tender. And you, you, you invite them in to that area to lightly remove the, the impediment to your vision. You don't invite the person with the plank. First of all, they can't see. They're not even interested. They're, they're clueless and they're dangerous. And the point is this. this. This idea is Jesus is saying, if you want to remove an impediment for others to see me, the first thing you need to do is deal with your issue. And what's your issue? Your issue is the same as mine. You're a sinner. You judge. You condemn. You prejudge. I was guilty of that yesterday. You can judge me all you want, but I, I have to say that the, the, the first speaker... I, I, I was blown away that he, he possessed two master's degrees and a PhD. 
Every one of those men was far more educated than I was. Far more articulate. And the thing that got me is they were far more merciful. I was humbled. I don't know that I've ever been as offended in my life as any of them have ever been offended. I don't think I've ever been as hurt as they've been hurt. And I certainly can testify that I've never been as broken and humble and forgiving and merciful as anyone in the room that spoke. And I was so touched that my, my heart was open and my eyes were open and I was looking at them saying, could you help me with this impediment? Will you remove that for me? And they delicately and lovingly, by humility, bless me. The scripture says, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck that is in your brother's eye. And he, Jesus makes it clear. He says, a good, a good tree does not bear bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit, for every tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they gather grapes from a bramble bush. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil, for out of abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. I could tell by their words that I could trust them. I love being around gracious people. I love being around people whose lives match their words and whose words match their lives. I was deeply touched. I was deeply ministered to. And this is that picture that from the overflow of a man's heart comes his words. You're not just, you're not just talking. I, I, know the, I know the difference between words not matching the man and the man not matching the words. I hear what you're saying, but what you're doing speaks so loudly it's hard to hear what you're saying. I love you, brother, but. That's one of my favorites. The but is a disassociative conjunctive to say, I don't love you, and I'm going to really tell you what I think about you because I'm ready to condemn you and judge you. So just stay there because I've used those nice words, bless your heart, while I machine gun you. And the idea is, out of the good treasure, that treasure is this life that is one committed to others. Out of this good treasure of a man's heart comes forth his words. And then verse 46, Jesus says, but why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I say? Morality is not doing what's wrong. We, we know this lesson. I, I, I can assume probably with pretty good accuracy that this is a room of moral people. You don't do what's wrong. I don't know that it is a room full of men and women of character. Morality is not doing what's wrong. Character is doing what's right. All of these are people, this idea of not judging and not condemning, these are all people that don't do anything. They don't do what's wrong, but they don't do what's right either. They just don't do anything. And they justify their existence by pointing out that they're not doing what the other people are doing. And yet, character is doing what's right. You know the illustration. Your child comes home and says, Mommy, Daddy, everyone in the school called Susie ugly. But I didn't. And you say, that's, that's the moral thing to do. 
but you don't have any character. And the child says, what do you mean I don't have character? Well, you have morality. You, you didn't do what's wrong, but you have no character. And the child says, why? What do you mean? Why didn't you tell the other children to stop it? The church in America, especially in California, we've been here, Calvary Chapel, 51 years. We've watched everything implode around us. We've never owned more buildings, had more bookstores, more radio stations, more seminaries. We've never had more assets. While everyone around us is imploding, the foundations are crumbling. And we stand back and, and, and we point out. And we're really good at defining it. I've gotten all the emails and all the visceral emails and how you're just so disgusted with the condition of the country. Don't send me anymore. I get it. You don't do what they do. I get it. They are bad. You are good. But the question is, Jesus is saying, you want to be like the teacher? I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for the many. I came to forgive. I came to give. I came to pour my life into those who don't want anything to do with me. I came to build a foundation on truth. I came to build an edifice that righteousness would exalt a nation, that sin is a reproach to any people. I'm building. I'm laying this foundation on a rock, which is Jesus Christ. Oh, but the church has figured out a way around that one. This idea of building on this rock and this foundation and the rest of the world, we're saying, oh, they're building on shifting sands. Well, what is the rock? And, and the church is so good at this. We, we, we come up with this. This, this, is, this is the new norm in the body of Christ. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And by the way, this is the word of God and it's completely true. Do you understand this? It's the church that has really used it to an extent, to justify themselves by condemning others. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. No one ever remembers verse 10, but they love verses 8 and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, lest anyone should boast." Praise the Lord, we've been saved by grace through faith. Saved by grace through faith. Saved by grace through faith. I didn't earn it. I couldn't earn it. God gave it to me. I believed. I believed that his death on the cross, Bible says blood must be shed for the remission of sin. He died in my place. He was resurrected. And by that gift, I received that by faith. And I'm, I, my sins are as cast as far as the east is from the west to be remembered no more. And I've been washed as white as snow. And I'm a new creature in Christ. Amen. And if you believe that and you confess with your heart and believe with your, confess with your tongue and believe in your heart, Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. And people raise their hand and we love it. And we've been doing that up and down California for 51 years. And 10,000% growth as people come forward going, I want to give my life to Christ. And, and, and by faith through grace and grace through faith, I believe, I believe. Praise the Lord. And we take and we say, we have our get out of hell free card. But we forget verse 10, for we are his workmanship, work. Voompa, voompa, voompa. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which prepare beforehand that we should walk in them. Oh, bro, 
Mom, that's legalism. I'm saved by grace. Why do you got to get all judgmental, bro? Don't impose your morality on me. I'm not imposing my morality. I'm hopefully imposing my character. I, I can't be moved. This is my life. This is what I'm about. I proclaim, proclaim the truth. I'm building a foundation. I want, I want to engage in the culture. I want you to see that this is how you, 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 you cause a nation to rise. This is, this is how you bless communities. You involve yourself. And the church goes, no, that's just, there's conflict there. I'm saved by grace, bro. Uh, the law, man, the law, I've been set free from the law of sin and death by the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Amen. You have been. Yeah, I know. I mean, we're not under the law. And, and in the body of Christ in America, we don't know what to do with the law. We're saved by grace through faith. We're saved by grace through faith. We're saved by grace through faith. What's the point of the law? I'm glad you asked me that. We are saved by grace, and now we are no longer under the law. That's true. Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Just as Abraham believed God, it was accounted to him as righteousness. Therefore, know that only those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham. Abraham believed God, it was accredited to him as righteousness. What is righteousness? That's building that firm foundation. That firm foundation builds an edifice. And we are no longer under the law. It's not by works of the law. So what's the point of the law? Glad you asked me that. And in the body of Christ, we learn how to read this in such a judgmental way. But before faith came, because we are totally under faith, right? Before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. And then this is the part. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor. We say it this way, and I grew up in Calvary Chapels with this. The law is a schoolmaster to drive you to Christ. And I have this picture in my head of Jonah Daskin. She was the math teacher at Coronado High School. She was mean. We had a song for her. Jonah Daskin. That's it. That's the song. And she was so mean. And if you get something wrong, she'd whack you on the knuckles. You're like, whoa. And she was just, she looked mean. She looked like you'd been eating lemons all day. Look at that. And to this day, I hate math. And if I'm going to succeed at math, she was a schoolmaster that drove me to Christ. Lord, have mercy on me, because that woman, I can't keep up with that. And that's my picture. What is the law? The law is a schoolmaster. You're wrong. You're wrong. That's not what it means. A tutor is a teacher. Teachers teach you to point you to God. We create laws to draw men to Christ. This idea of foundation in Genesis, in the Garden of Eden, this idea of good fruit, good trees, God created 
And took man and put him in the garden of Eden to keep it. And the Lord commanded the man saying, of every tree of the garden of Eden freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. In that day eating it you shall surely die. This is a good tree. This is a bad tree. You eat of this, we have relationship. You eat of this, you're under your own. You want to have a life with me or you want to live apart from God? Well, I want to live apart from God. Then you know good and evil. And that, that, that tree is death. This tree is life. And your eyes are open. Now you know good and evil. And you know that you want to build a world and concentrate power to yourself and avoid your creator. I'm almost done because I know I'm boring you guys to death, but I'll, I'll drive this point home. The law is a tutor to bring us to Christ. What that means is, it's not a mean tutor. I've had some really good teachers. And they've, they've taught me things that have allowed me to understand how to build upon a foundation of righteousness that would exalt a nation. Why are we so emphatic about educating our children? Because we want them to have a future. Why is the enemy so emphatic about taking our authority to teach our children so that they can not educate but indoctrinate? There's a battle. And God wants us to build on this foundation of this rock of Christ. You know, instead of looking at a Jonah Daskin, look at the law like a really pleasant teacher. I mean, I would learn from a lady like that. I'm like, I want to go to school. She seems really nice. I mean, there's people I've met in life that, that, that they make the complex simple and they have this tenderness about them. And then you enjoy learning, and then the light goes on, and you're like, this makes sense, and, and I understand these, these formulas and these systems. It's amazing. And that's what, that's what the Lord wants us to do in culture. You see, we would rather make our Christianity judgmental as opposed to proactive. Good works prepared beforehand, whereas po- poema, his workmanship, were to build. The body of Christ is not apathy. It's active, it's engaging, it changes culture. And there is a contrast between the two trees, and this is where we're going to go at this point, and I'll close it up with this. This tree of the knowledge of good and evil set man on a course of destruction. Righteousness exalts a nation. Sin is a reproach to any people. Sin is destructive, righteousness is edifying and building You have two directions, either a world without God or a world with God. Either a world submitted to God and wanting to be like him or judgmental, condemnation, self-righteousness, selfless service, selfishness. Choose this day whom you'll serve. And listen, moral people are still headed in this direction. You call me Lord, Lord. For 51 years in California, we've been saying Lord, Lord, while we watch a a state inundated with Christians, 15 million of them, almost 16, abort more babies than the entire population of Canada. Lord, Three hundred and fifty Calvary chapels south of Van Nuys. Lord, and He's saying, "If you're my t- student and I'm your teacher, 
You're going to be like me. I didn't come to, to be served, but to serve. I came to build. And the beauty of it is, I'm going to remove the plank in your eye by grace through faith. And that tenderness of having the law reside in you and this spirit of God to build this workmanship as I guide your hands in obedience, as I instruct you and teach you in the ways of righteousness, that you would impart that to your children and show them the right way. It's not just your get out of hell free card. It's Lord. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In this realm, we're in a, we're in a world of hurt right now. We've got 12 minutes, hang with me. In this world, we're in a world of hurt. Because we're, we're in a battle. And the only entity remaining to contend and to fight for the edification and the building of a nation is the body of Christ. But if we're just giving him lip service, we will watch this experiment in liberty destroyed. 6,000 years of recorded history, we have 244 years of self-governance. Men and women accountable to God, serving one another. And the only way to destroy that is by envy, strife, and division. The, the world is trying to cause Pastor Michael and myself to hate each other simply because of our melanin content. And we buy into it. But then Christ comes along and removes this plank and we look at each other and we say, help me see you clearer. I trust you. Just that little speck he removes from my eye and vice versa. Why? So we realize we're both created in the image of God, fearfully and wonderfully made, knitted together in our mother's womb. What God has brought together in this, this picture of, 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 of unity the world tries to divide. Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He, he wants to take the weak, and he wants to just maul them. He wants to divide you and split you. Envy, strife, division. Envy, strife, division. And God says, endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We come unglued over everything. It's fascinating to me as we go across this country how simply we can be divided over the dumbest of things. And if we don't stand together, we're going to fall apart. And, and you know what? We've got to step in. I've got to be challenged. I want to understand these things. Because there's an enemy who comes to destroy us, and they have a purpose. And, and I'll walk you through it. This is Machiavelli. You've heard Machiavellian technique. Machiavelli, interesting. 1498, he was in Florence, Italy. He tried to get all of these different nation states, these little tiny groups of Venice, Genoa, Genoa Amalfi, Milan, Corsica, Florence, Pisa, San Marino. Uh, they had armies and navies. They fought all the time, continually. And Machiavelli was a political philosopher. And he thought one prince could control all of the Italian city-states. Infighting would stop. There would be peace. And he wrote a book called The Prince in 1513. And it credited with promoting the idea, I don't know if you've ever heard it, but the ends justify the means. The end is that we want everyone to be together in unity. Right? And so 
by any means we need to get there because that's the ultimate good. That's the ultimate good. The ends justify the means. So one prince controlling all of Italy, such a good end that it would put this infighting away and whatever was necessary to achieve this included lying and deception, cheating, stealing, voter fraud, intimidate, bribe. If the end is good, it's okay. You see that? And in this experiment in self-governance, the problem is I sit in council meetings every other Tuesday and nobody is there. We've been given a constitutional republic where you can participate in serving people. And all I ever get is the condemnation and the judgment. I can't believe you did. Well, why don't you do? We only, we only get the, the phone call after it's been done. Participate. We have a gift of self-governance and you can't even get people to participate. An experiment in liberty, 244 years of self-governance and we're apathetic. And yet here, they're going to take the government and they'll do it by any means and you have been given the wisdom of God to care for people. Creator capitalized on crisis to consolidate control. Sound familiar? There was a German philosopher, Hegel, Frederick, Friedrich, or George Friedrich Hegel. He lived in Germany. The state is as God walking on the earth. So what they said is, remove God, and we're just going to make the state God. This is what we're contending with. This is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This, this is what God desires. And so they come up with a Hegelian dialects, which is very simple. You have this idea of a thesis, uh, an uh, antithesis, and, and as I'll walk you through it. It's, it's somewhat simple. I want to get to the simplest part of it. Hegel's method is of a resolving a contradiction between a proposition and its apparent opposite term, Hegelian dialect. Applied politically, it is a way to concentrate power. It is explained with a triangle that you see here, where one corner is the thesis, the opposite corner is the antithesis or antithesis, and the top corner is the synthesis. It sounds complicated. It's not. Listen. Starting at the thesis, which is status quo, one creates a problem that is really bad, the antithesis then would be people uh, would, would uh, then people will be willing to surrender their freedoms for a solution which is only half as bad. The synthesis. Each synthesis becomes a new thesis. So your culture's declined, and now you're happy living with super long lines waiting to get to the airport. Uh, you're happy with whatever it is. They've taken away your rights, whittled them away. So the synthesis becomes a new thesis and the process is repeated until all power is voluntarily relinquished by the people into the hands of a dictator. You are given freedom. The first time in 6,000 years of recorded history, you have 244 years of self-governance and you let people take it away because you don't defend it and you allow your children to be educated opposite of it. You, us, I'm part of it. Please forgive me. The practical implication of Hegel's theory was to identify the tension or fault lines running through a society. Then fan these real or perceived injustices into flames, causing public emotions to reach the boiling point. Once crisis breaks out, everyone is desperate to have the anarchy and random killing stopped, urgently wanting order restored, and they're willing to relinquish their rights and freedoms to the state. 
Uh, President Obama's uh, political advisor, uh, David Axelrod, he wrote this. He said, in Chicago, there was an old tradition of throwing a brick through your own campaign office window, then calling the press conference to say that you'd been attacked. Fanning the flames of division and finding those fault lines would have been a fair game yesterday. Every one of the speakers could have, could have been appealed to their base interest of anger and unforgiveness and, and pitted us against each other simply by the, the content of melanin. And if, and if we did a magic wand and made us all the same color, we would still divide over the color of our eyes. This is what the enemy wants to do is divide us, especially in self-governance. Karl Marx was a member of the Young Hegelians, the University of Berlin. He advocated the communist tactic, which was also used by Nazis, to intentionally uh, foment domestic unrest and anarchy. And when blood flowed in the streets, the people would allow power to be usurped by a dictator promising to help. How was domestic unrest created? They would send in agitators, labor organizers, community organizers, agent provocateurs, or provo- uh, provoking agents to create domestic class and race hatred. Finding those with real or perceived injustices or inequalities, they would promise to champion their cause if the people joined them. Those believing the lies were referred to as useful idiots. <laughs> 45 countries fell to communist dictators this way. The proletariat, the working class, was against the bourgeoisie, the business owner, the poor against the rich, blacks against whites, Catholics against Protestants, Muslims against Christians, Hutus against Tutsis in the Congo and Rwanda. When the British went into the Congo and Rwanda, they took people that had gotten along for hundreds of years and they started to measure their skull size. And they said, you're a Hutu. And they'd measure theirs, you're a Tutsi. And they go, what do you mean? You're different tribes. But we've been together. No, 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 It's, it's different. And then they would split them and then they would agitate them with a perceived in, injustice and then they would, they would, they killed each other. Almost a million people died in, in a span of less than a year and they were all killed by machetes. I don't know where we are. Napoleon, he said, religion is what keeps the poor from murdering the rich. This doesn't work in Christianity if we endeavor to keep the union of spirit and the bond of peace. It doesn't work in a culture if we understand the Ten Commandments, five accountable to God, five accountable to each other. We would look at socialism, we'd go, no, 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 that's a violation of the Tenth Commandment. Thou shalt not covet. You don't steal something that belongs to somebody else, and you don't weaponize law and use government to steal from them. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Envy, strife, division. Envy, strife, division. That's mine. And it's fascinating that children in college today believe in socialism until you ask them one question. And I was watching it this week. They go up to me and go, yeah, I believe in socialism. Ocasio-Cortez, I think we, yeah. Bernie, yeah. And you say, okay, let's apply socialism to your grades. We're going to take your A and give you a C and we're going to give your friend who has an F a C and you're going to be equal. No. But it seems so good on paper. And it's so stupid. And we're like, no, it's different. This is different. It's a different socialism. It's totally different than the, the, the other ones. It's never worked before, but this time, doggone it, we're going to get it right. And no pulpits cover it. Because we just like to talk instead of do. 
The British Empire worked this. They, they went into India and they split all the different kingdoms and they, they pitted them and they armed them and then they, they fomented strife between them and they let them kill each other and they came in and took over. They did it in, in America as well. Uh, Burgoyne made a treaty with the Mohawks to terrorize Americans. They'd scalp them and they'd leave them dead. Fort Mims in Alabama, the British, uh, they came in. Indians took the fort with heavy loss, then killed all but 36, some 550 in the fort. Creeks had been armed by the British at Pensacola in this phase in the War of 1812. They knew how to conquer territories. They just pitted us against each other. Che Guevara, and we love our young people, have the Che hats. Do you know what you're wearing? Do you know how stupid that is? Who told you this? Pick up a book. Read. Blind hate against the enemy creates a forceful impulse that cracks the boundaries of natural human limitations, transforming the soldier in an effective, selective, and cold-killing machine. A people without hate cannot triumph. And that's what we got to do. We just got to get each other hating each other. And we have to just capitalize on the injustice. Karl Marx and Frederick Engels, conspirators by no means confine themselves to organizing the revolutionary proletariat, manual labor workers. Their business consists in spurring it in artificial crisis. We have to, we have to make a crisis and capitalize on it. The only condition required for the revolution is a sufficient organization of their own conspiracy. They are the alchemists of the revolution. Every new crisis must be more serious and more universal than the last because we have to keep splitting them and, and whittling down their forces. Every fresh slump of ruin, more small capitalists increase the workers who live only by their labor. And this will increase the number of the unemployed. And the unemployed are the easiest to manipulate. In the end, the commercial crisis will lead to a social revolution far beyond the comprehension of the econo- economists with their scholastic wisdom. David Horowitz, you guys know this, uh, this commentator. He says, the issue is never the issue. The issue is always a revolution. The issue is never the issue. Whatever it is we're fighting over is stupid. It's just the revolution itself. Just get them to pit each other one against the other. Those believing... Lying propaganda are useful fools, useful idiots. These are some of the folks that manage to apply this and destroy culture. The revolution needs the enemy. The proletariat does not flee from the enemy. It needs the enemy. Castro also said the revolutionary needs his antithesis or antithesis, which is the counter-revolutionary. Saul Alinsky rules for radicals. He followed the same thing. The organizer's first job is to create the issues or problems. The organizer must first rub raw the resentments of the people of the community. An organizer must stir up dissatisfaction and discontent, fan the latent hostilities of many of the people to the point of overt expression. I'm going through this, but, and I'm, I'm two minutes over. People wanted me to continue. If you have to go, go. But I, I'm, I got about 20 slides left. I'll go as fast as I've been going. But I do want to say this. Yesterday for the two of us, The only way that we can hold this experiment in liberty together and not be pitted against each other and have the elite rule the many and lose this freedom of self-governance is that we have got to break these barriers and get in there and start to get to know one another. If you want to be angry, envy, strife, division, envy, strife, division, and you want to lob bombs, you need to step out of your comfort zone and go and get to know one another. 
I was a pair of white shoes with a black tuxedo yesterday. And it broke me in a good way. Stretch. Some of you listen to Michael and Patience sing and, and you go, I wish we had John back. That's why they're here. So you feel that way. And you don't like it? Tough. The organizer polarizes the issue and helps to lead his forces into conflict. He must search out controversy, for unless there is controversy, people are not concerned enough to act. Lest we forget at least an over-the-shoulder acknowledgement to the first radical known to man who rebelled against the establishment and did it so effectively that he at least won his own kingdom. Saul Linsky, talking about Lucifer. Genesis chapter 3, interesting. Six things does the Lord hate, a proud look, a lying tongue, hand swift to shedding innocent blood, and he that sows discord amongst brethren. Envy, strife, division. Envy, strife, division. And the way you do it is judge, condemn. Virtue signaling, taking the moral high ground, and being moral people but not being people of character. Don't do anything. Just don't do anything. And then you're moral. You're not doing what's wrong. But you're also not doing what's right. It's not enough to be moral. Moral is a tree of the knowledge of good and evil and its destruction. God's people are his workmanship. We're called to engage Don't say, Lord, Lord, and watch the abortion rate rise and do nothing. All that's necessary for evil to triumph is for good men and women to do nothing. There's no Lord, Lord in this. I've only got 10 slides. If anyone wants to see them later, we can do that. But I'll just close with this. But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do do not do the things which I say? Whoever comes to me and hears my saying and does them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man who builds a house. You dug deep, you build a foundation, you have a culture to show. And here we are, 51 years, and what have we built? What do we have to show in California? The church doesn't even want to stay here anymore. People want to leave. Where's disciples? We have the privilege to engage in culture and make a difference. You apply the law, not, not as a schoolmaster to, to irritate people, but as a loving schoolmaster to show them. You see how this works? Take time to explain it to them. How do you explain it to them? You're helping remove an impediment. And why are they letting you come to remove the impediment? Because you took the big old plank out of your eye. There's a tenderness about you. There's a heart to serve. You're like your teacher. He didn't come to be served, but to serve. You're Jesus. And you serve him. You lay your life down. And when reviled, you revile not. You do good to those who spitefully use you. You bless them. You give. You forgive. That's what Christians do. Why? Because we have the name Christian. That means Jesus is our teacher. Right? And he's the rock. And that's the foundation. 
And we're called to do good works. We're not moral people. We're people of character. We're not moral people. We're people of character. Don't, don't, don't measure yourself by what you don't do. Measure yourself by what you do. And watch what God does. To the level you give and forgive, it'll be blessed to you. Pressed down, shaking over, overflowing. What he's saying is you're, you can't outgive God. Folks, let's bless this community. Let's engage. And lovingly as teachers, learning from ours, we instruct others. And we remove that impediment so they would know the truth and the truth would set them free. And we do it in such a way that the plank isn't knocking them over.